You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. If your team is ready to improve patient outcomes, check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com for information about webinars and consulting services. Okay, it's way past time to talk about registered dietitians. It is a shame to have left out such a huge part of this ICU puzzle. I have been learning so much throughout this podcast and I'm grateful to you amazing listeners that have reached out and said, hey, Kaylee, you need to discuss this and include that. I love it. I am grateful for all of you. We discuss interdisciplinary collaboration in the ICU, not just to make sure everyone feels important and seen, We are working through this because we have to understand the vitality of everyone's role. The gaps in our practices are almost always a result of the gaps in our knowledge. We cannot work together if we don't understand the value of everyone's roles and how to best utilize each other's expertise. With that, Megan and Amanda, expert ICU dietitians, join us now to open our eyes to the essential role registered dietitians play in the ICU. Okay, Amanda, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I have been thrilled about this episode. We've been needing it for a long time. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Yes, of course. Thank you for having us. We're very excited. My name's Amanda. I'm a registered dietitian. I did my undergraduate degree in Indiana. I then went on to complete my internship and my master's degree in Illinois, where I then worked as a clinical dietitian for two years. And then I moved to Virginia, where I've been working as a clinical dietitian still for the past year. And my name is Megan. I am also a registered dietitian. I completed my undergrad in um, Rhode Island, went on to complete my master's and internship also in Illinois. And then I moved back home to Long Island, where I was working in Brooklyn, then moved to Virginia as well. Awesome. And I think we crossed paths because I was on a ISU dietitian page. I'm looking for collaboration and I'm pretty sure I made a mistake in one of my posts. I think I said nutritionist or something like that. And I got massacred. So (laughs) will you clarify for all of us? So no one makes the same mistakes. Tell us about what registered dietitians are and what you do and your role on the ICU team. Yeah. So nutritionists, some people use it synonymously. Dietitians love to be called dietitians. So a little bit of the difference. So we do have an undergraduate degree that we have to complete. The master's degree is optional right now. By 2024, it will be required. So a lot of dietitians do hold that master's degree, but it will be required soon. After the education, we go on to complete the 1200 hour internship. So it's mainly clinical based depending on where where you do it, but it kind of covers every area of dietetics. So it's 1200 hours that is required to sit to take the national exam. So then we take an exam, become credentialed through the academy, and then we do have advanced certifications as well. So then we can go on um, to do nutrition support, PEDS, weight management, oncology, renal, some of those certifications 
require us to have a certain amount of hours in the field. Some don't, it's kind of, it depends. Some of them, you have to take the exam every certain number of years, depending on which one it is. So it is just wanting to keep up to date on the research, wanting to make sure that, you know, you're fulfilling the competencies. So the thing that is the difference between the nutritionist and the dietitian, we do medical nutrition therapy. So meaning that we are able to provide education to individuals with diabetes, kidney disease, those types of things specific to the disease state. Whereas nutritionists, that is not allowed in some states, it is actually illegal because dietitians can be licensed in certain states. Again, it's not all states, it just kind of depends. So some require licensure, some states are credentialed. And some states don't have anything at the moment. And so nutritionists, like I said, can't do the medical nutrition therapy, but they do have to go through some training. It could be anywhere from like a six week course to two week course, two week course, kind of depend. It can be, you know, an undergrad degree, but it's kind of just like an iffy statement of if someone calls themselves a nutritionist. We don't exactly know where they're getting that degree from. Okay. So yeah, it's kind of like CNA versus RN or CNA versus NP. Like they're very different education focus credentials capacity. So thank you for the specification. And so when it comes to your role on the ICU team, how do you approach caring and consulting on an ICU patient? Yeah. So we just kind of wanted to point out just as a whole, we both work in the intensive care unit as as well as just on the general floor. Dietitians as a whole, we see the patient, you know, we're not just looking in their chart briefly and seeing what diet they're on and then running upstairs to go see them. We look at everything, medication, labs, past medical history. We want to know, you know, what disease states we need to address when we're in the room with the patient. We look at micronutrient deficiencies. We look at food drug interactions. We are heavily, we have a heavy communication with the multidisciplinary teams in the hospital. We, on a daily basis, we talk to the care managers, of course, the doctors, nurses. We work with speech really closely. So we work with a lot of the disciplines. And so when we're seeing a patient in the ICU, the main thing is we, you know, want to see how we can feed them. Um, We want to see, you know, if they're in the ICU, whether they're intubated or not, you know, one of the projects that we are working on is early enteral nutrition. So we want to make sure that we're screening these patients as soon as they get into the ICU and figuring out if they're on an oral diet, if they are MPO, if tube feed is appropriate, if parenteral nutrition is appropriate. So that's kind of where we start at. And I really appreciate that because you guys have a much broader perspective than many of us in the ICU because you see them after the ICU, you see what the recovery is like. And it sounds like that's kind of what's motivating you to be more proactive in the early stages. What is it like on your team? I know that some teams, dietitians aren't even really part of the discussion. Some teams they're integrated part of rounds. How is it for your team and how should we be using dietitians? Definitely in rounds as much as possible. I think Megan and I both have at the place we're at now and where we previously worked, we were included in rounds. Unfortunately, that's not the case everywhere for dietitians. You know, it's hard because a lot of times people don't know what the dietitian does. Sometimes our office is stuck in the kitchen. So our office isn't up on the floor. We're not having those daily interactions with doctors, at least face to face. So I think that, you know, getting our faces out there 
being up on the floor as much as possible, having those in-person conversations with doctors, nurses, the multidisciplinary team, pharmacists, that's really the key role. Coming to the facility that I'm at now, I feel like we have a huge or a better communication with multidisciplinary teams. Everyone is just very open. So that's really great. Everyone knows who the dietitians are, which isn't always the case. So just getting getting our faces up there because a lot of people just assume that we see patients because they need a diet change or they need their tray ordered, but that is, you know, the kitchen and that's completely separate from what the dietitians do. And it sounds like you guys have a lot more to offer than just changing it to a renal diet. You know, there's, there's so much more to it that I think we don't want to appreciate. We screen our ICUs individually. Like we can, we do get consulted most of the times, but if we see that their BMI is under, or we screen them previously for malnutrition or things like that, like we can put ourselves onto the case during rounds and we'll discuss. And then we pipe up, like, what do the dietitians have to say? And then we can come on. Or if we hear something during rounds and then that we need to go see the patient, then that will make us trigger us and we can go. Oh, I love that. I hope that that's part of everyone's protocol is that you guys are able to say, Hey, you need us on this. It is very individualized per facility. I think we have a lot of leeway where we can kind of just bring ourselves onto the patient if we want to see them. I don't think that's always the case. Sometimes you do need a doctor's order and you know, if it's not an ICU, the doctor isn't always present. A lot of the times if the dietitian can't find them, then it might be something that just takes a little bit more effort. And different states have different rules. Like I know back at, in New York at my old hospital, like they had some rules taken away, so they weren't allowed to. But previously when I worked in the SICU during rounds, we had the freedom, whereas now they're backtracking a little bit. So it does depend. Yeah. And we'll get into that this later, but I'm that has to impact outcomes. I'm thinking about a couple, no, many episodes ago, um, I interviewed a CNA down in Arizona who was watching on their COVID unit, these patients on high flu nasal cannula breathing in the forties, they were not allowed to get out of bed and they didn't have enteral feeds going. And I'm sure dietitians just cringe at that. So how much would those outcomes of those patients, how many intubations would be avoided if there were dietitians that were able to come in and storm the palace, right. And say, you're missing a piece of the puzzle here. We're here to bring it. Um, so I would invite everyone that's listening to really ask and question your own teams. What role are your dietitians playing or allowed to play and how can we better utilize them? I am really excited about your role on your team. I think you guys have a lot of really cool things going and you guys contacted me because you as dietitians are pulling your team together to implement the ABCDEF bundle, which is exactly what a multi and interdisciplinary team should be about and should be allowed to do. Everyone should be able to pull the team together to require or encourage uh, evidence-based practices. So how did that even start? How did you get to that point of ringing the bells in your own team? So we started listening to the podcast and wanted to initiate the process of combining all the disciplines together. Like I said, like Amanda said, we had already started the early NRL nutrition protocol, trying to get patients fed. While we are not a part of the 8F bundle, we just kind of wanted to push ourselves in there. And so we named it kind of like the ICU multidisciplinary early interventions protocol. We have a new ICU tower being built currently that's under construction. And so we went into our intensivist and said, hey, this is what we want to do. What do you think? Can we get everybody together 
and make this happen basically. So we've had a couple of meetings so far. We have one every month to just get everybody together. It includes the intensivist, the ICU nurse manager, the ICU clinical coordinator, the director of rehab, along with PT, OT, and SLP, various members, whoever wants to be involved with that. And it also involves pharmacy and then two nurse champions that we picked that were very intrigued about the bundle and wanted to be a part of it. Oh, that is so exciting. And what kind of feedback are you getting? Are these other disciplines eager to do this as well? Rehab had already started their own early mobility, but it wasn't really a part of everybody. They had just started coming to rounds and everything. So they kind of put themselves onto the cases as well and and get consulted, but it wasn't really like the culture needs to change. So we had our own bundle, they had their own bundle. So we kind of just tried to get it all together. (laughs) Yeah. And you make a really good point um, that in most of the A to F protocols, bundles, um, nutrition isn't always specified, but it, it really should be. And I see some of our nutrition research coming and integrating into this big movement to focus on long-term outcomes of ICU survivors. I think there is a movement to integrate nutrition. I think we're realizing that early mobility is a struggle when patients are malnourished, that part of early mobility and preserving muscle and function is nutrition, which you're all shaking your head because that's a duh on the medical and sometimes nursing side. It's not so obvious, especially when we have obese patients, we make it really inaccurate assumptions about their nutrition status. So why is it so important to be so aggressive and early with nutrition in the ICU? I think the main thing is just the fact of the percentage of patients that come into the hospital already malnourished. I mean, some patients definitely get malnutrition in the hospital if it's a prolonged hospital stay. Um, But you could probably just guess if a patient is coming in, especially to the ICU, their nutrition status is really low. So whether that be, and that's part of our assessment, we talk to patients, whether that be, you know, we've had, they've had a poor appetite for a month, two months, they haven't been eating anything, they've had significant weight loss. So part of what the dietitians do we identify and treat malnutrition in the hospital. So we're using Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and Aspen criteria to diagnose someone. And so that includes a weight history, the diet history, and we assess for muscle or fat loss. So we do touch our patients, feel certain areas of their body to try to help support that diagnosis for malnutrition. And when someone is malnourished, if we can identify that, that's when we want to get that aggressive nutrition started, whether it be enteral nutrition or a PO diet, we want to try to get it as soon as possible. And while malnutrition is under underdiagnosed in the hospital, approximately like one third of patients who are not malnutrition, malnourished on admission become malnourished throughout the admission. Wow. So a big deal to have 20 to 50% malnourished at baseline, and then about a third of them become malnourished. So you guys are very busy in the hospital. And how does being malnourished impact outcomes? Why should we be panicked about this? I, I know we sometimes we think like, oh, they're really thin or whatever. But now I'm thinking, you know, the Apache score being malnourished really increases someone's acuity. It changes the projection for their outcomes and their level of illness. Why is that? Well, malnutrition, like with poor outcomes, but also like the economic burden, it also, it's an independent 
indicator of mortality, longer hospital length of stays, higher infection rates, poor wound healing, unfavorable outcomes in general, and readmission rates as well. So it just impacts everything. Yeah, the main thing we definitely want to try to prevent like the wounds. So they're definitely at increased risk for developing those pressure injuries. And I think the length of stay, it's one and a half to 1.7 times longer of a malnourished patient versus a regular healthy person. Wow. And how does that impact readmission rates? Yeah. So it's a 60% increased risk in readmission within 15 days. 60% within 50 day, 15 days. 15. Yes. Yeah. That is so significant. And I, and I think that plays into this whole picture of being deconditioned, malnourished, deconditioned, they have poor functional status. They are at such high risk of being readmitted, but malnutrition plays such a huge role in that. That is, that's mind blowing. What else is the current research showing us? With malnutrition, so basically disease-related malnutrition cost in the United States anywhere from 147 to 157 billion per year um, in medical costs. Wow. So it's definitely a financial burden along with the readmission rates and then just the financial burden of those pressure injuries that develop from being malnourished. Yeah. And uh, a study done by Dr. Wishmeyer also said that like malnourished, malnourished patients added like about $10,000 more to a hospital cost of stay, two times higher discharge rate to the long-term care facility or rehab, 1.4 higher need for home health care undernourished patients are also more two times more likely to develop pressure ulcers and the is 3.8 times more likely to impact the readmission rates. Wow. So much of this podcast has been focused on discharge disposition. How do we get patients home? I mean, it's in the title, right? Walking, walking home from the ICU. So we're trying to avoid LTAC admissions, readmission rates, but how did I make it to episode like 90 before we actually talked about really dived into nutrition. We've talked about nutrition in the context of preventing muscular atrophy, but also trying to correct even baseline malnutrition. So what can be done? What do you guys do and how do we improve upon our response to malnutrition in the hospital? Yeah. Again, I think it's just early enteral nutrition from an ICU standpoint, we, if a patient is malnourished, we want them to be initiated as soon as possible on, you know, if it's enteral, the um, ideal is five days, but that's five to seven days. That's more um, on the general floor. So when it's in the ICU, it's basically as soon as possible. Yeah. You kind of brought up the, you know, being on high flow. That's something that's a huge issue, especially obviously with COVID our BiPAP patients, our high flow patients, they're going the five to seven days without, you know, getting good nutrition because, you know, technically based on Aspen guidelines, you should be feeding those patients parenterally, whereas some doctors are more hesitant towards that, obviously fluid status. It's not recommended to try to quickly feed somebody when taking off the BiPAP mask quickly just because of risk, risk of aspiration. So sometimes if those patients can't get off the BiPAP, they will go five days, you know, getting less than 50% of their needs. And to add to that, with the BiPAP and TPN and everything, they think that infection rates is a high thing. That is 20, 30 years old. It's been disproven multiple times. Infection rate is not, yes, in the old times, it's with hyperglycemia, which with the bundle care of nursing, things like that, sterilized care, 
But now if you have appropriate care and you control things, you can, it's not the TPN that's causing the infections. When we talk about the ICU, we, we also have to take in consideration, again, intubation. Are they on pressors? Are they on propofol? Things that add non-calorie nutrition, like the propofol, like IV fluids. We have to look at all of that. If they're on pressors, how many pressors? What's the dosage rate? Are they trending up, trending down? What's their lactate? <laughs> what is their lab status? What is, which things, all, all that takes, we take that into consideration and we want to at least get trickle feeds in there to maintain gut integrity and, and reduce oxidative stress and just help with the immunity. So all of that is just, we all, we could just consider that. We have a lot of you things consider on. that. I'm not sure that the whole team considers that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we try very the whole team to get that going, right? It takes intensive to understand, hey, this patient probably needs TPN sooner or later that respect your, your expertise in this and understand the big picture. So what are some of the barriers that you see that your colleagues or yourself have been battling with in the ICU community in starting enteral nutrition ASAP on these patients? Enteral nutrition is a lot easier to start just because they place, like they intubate the patient and then they'll place like a tube. It's when they get extubated is also very hard because they'll take the tube out, which we want to keep that in. But parenteral nutrition, again, it's fluid status, it's the infection rate thing, and they are concerned whether the five days to seven days is the Aspen guidelines. The new Aspen C critical care medicine guidelines for COVID on the BiPAP high flow, that came out when COVID hit, hit. and that was when you can start it earlier, especially in the patients that are malnourished. So we normally do... um, Tube feeds, it's except if they don't tolerate the tube feeds, is it the tube feed? Is it the medications? Is it, they have to get a KUB? Is the placement correct? They have to get the imaging. They have to see if they have any other signs of intolerance, like nausea, vomiting, abdominal distension, things like that have to be taken into consideration. And I think the struggle is once they're extubated or if they're just our patients in the ICU that, you know, they're not intubated, but they're just not eating. I think a lot of nurses, doctors, it's just like, we don't want to place a tube in a patient that's completely alert and fine. They're just not eating because they're sick is fine. But in the ICU, we really got to push for it. And, you know, if the patient is agreeable, then there's no reason why we shouldn't place it. Now, if they're totally against it, if they're like, you know, the young patient that doesn't want it, that's one thing, but we don't really know sometimes how, how often that question is being asked. You know, if you're eating nothing on your tray for multiple days, were they offered a tube feed, you know, just to make sure, or, you know, were we consulted so we could go talk to the patient and kind of, you know, let them know you're at increased risk for X, Y, and Z. Are you open to a tube feed? So it's more so the patients, once they're extubated, or if they're on modified textured diets, um, like pureed, putting thick diet, a patient really isn't going to get much nutrition on that. So can we keep the, you know, NG in once we extubate them and see how they do with eating? And a study shows that even seven days post extubation, adequacy of protein and energy intake was poor. The intake never exceeded like 37 to 55% of the estimated requirements. So we really push for tube feed and PO diet together to help meet their needs. Right. And that's post extubation. So at that point, they've already lost so much muscle. How can you rehabilitate if you're having 
30 to 50% of nutrition, that that is a huge barrier to actually rehabilitating and going home. I think the ICU, we think two feeds are for people that can't swallow. They have severe dysphagia, but you make a great point. That's not the only indicator for tube feeds, but I think culturally we think, okay, they have a tray in front of them, speech cleared them to swallow. If they don't want to eat, it's fine or whatever. And we're not looking at what's their caloric intake. I was amazed to hear how many COVID patients are hypermetabolic. How common is that? You know, we don't, we just don't understand the importance of meeting their metabolic needs, even when they can swallow. What what do dietitians wish that the ICU community knew or would actually implement in their culture and practices? I think first and foremost, just the importance of nutrition. You know, we base our documentation off of what the nurses document. And a lot of times the nurses don't document how much the patient is eating and we know they're busy and, you know, nurses have a lot on their plate, but if that's not something that they're thinking about, like, oh, I should document how much this patient is eating. They're not going to think about how do I get this patient to eat more? So that's just something. And that is why we're at rounds, you know, at rounds, we're always like, how's the patient eating? What percentage they have a supplement? Are they drinking it? So that's definitely an issue. And if teams have a culture where dietitians can't interject themselves and aren't involved in rounds and nutrition isn't being tracked, how much are these patients suffering because of it? And again, all so much comes down to culture. I mean, we have these great disciplines, all this expertise, all this research coming out, but if we can't apply it, it's all for nothing. Right. So what are some of the barriers you find when patients come in that are malnourished and then you get excited and you're able to start giving nutrition what happens then? And how does that impact critical illness? I would think barriers would just be placing that tube if it's needed, you know, maybe not. Like I said, we come from an ICU where we basically see our ICU patients within 24 to 48 hours. But I know in the past at my previous hospital, like we would be going on day five to six where you know, we didn't sometimes always go to rounds every day for whatever reason. And we would come across these patients or they get transferred from another floor where they have the poor appetite. They've been here for a week. Now they're in the ICU. And sometimes I feel like the nurses are not thinking like, oh, they just got in the ICU, but they've already been here for seven days. So we need, we can't wait another four to five days to think of what is our intervention going to be like if this patient needs a tube feed, they need a tube feed. And also if you go that long, we also are at risk of refeeding syndrome, which is high. It caused a couple of intubations in my patients a couple of times. It's a complication, including like severe electrolyte and abnormalities that can cause like heart failure and respiratory failure and even death. So most of the time you hear us asking, can we check a FOS? Can we get some thiamine? How are the other, because the lights are normally all we look at and FOS is, phosphorus is the highest one. That's the most important indicator. So that is also a significant complication if they are prolonged without any nutrition. And I think it's life-threatening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have issues too, of course, with our surgery patients, those people that come in with bowel obstructions that they think they're just going to resolve. And we're now on day six and they're still MPO and now they're going for surgery. You know, they just went those six days 
in house with, you know, clear liquids and they probably weren't eating well, like a week before coming in. And so now they're going into surgery, then they're going to have their post-op phase where we're not going to feed them right away. So those are the patients that we really want to try to get the, um, TPN started parenteral nutrition, something cause they're going into surgery malnourished and that's a huge issue. And then that's also like where the D5s at a hundred start. And then that's a lot of carbohydrate dextrose at once. And then you're giving so many calories that they will go into refeeding. So that's why we try to start it earlier, start it sooner so that we can avoid that complication and then provide the amino acids again to, for protein to help at least preserve the lean body mass that's there. Cause protein provision is the is the most important and it's more important than just even trying to meet their calories. Yeah. How do you stay calm when you get consultations when it's that late? Right. And when, you know, you're so well informed of, the big picture and the reality of what's going on. Cause I, I, again, it comes from kind of the nursing side. Nutrition wasn't a huge part of my education, not necessarily a huge part of our focus yet. And I think sometimes we think if patients are obese or have a higher BMI that we've got days to spare. We think about, ah, losing some extra weight won't be a big deal. So why is it a big deal? What's the first to go? And why is this important in obese patients? It is very important. Yes, this is, this uh, is you guys are shuddering. This is so, this is, oh, you hit a chord. <laughs> First off, they too, they can coexist. Malnutrition and obesity can coexist. They, they mainly have more fat stores. So with ad, inadequate nutrition, patients lose their muscle first. Like the weight, this weight loss is detrimental and they also metabolize the lean body mass at higher rates. So they obviously lose the lean body mass increased amount. So I'm thinking of some of our like 400, 500 pound patients, right? In my mind, those are the most important to be mobilizing early for even just for the sake of the staff. Cause if they become that weak and deconditioned, it's a huge hazard for everyone. And I'm not sure how we expect them to survive if they lose that muscle. So how lethal is it to assume that they can go days without eating or being fed. And then like you're saying, the first thing to go is their lean muscle. Well, we need that muscle on those big bodies to be able to have them off the ventilator and to move on their own and not to be a hazard to our team as we're trying to prone them or turn them or move them after they've been deconditioned. So like so many things on this podcast, that is goes onto the list of complete opposites you have just debunked a huge myth within the medical community. So our perspective on obesity needs to change. Yes. Yeah. And with malnutrition and the patient who's obese, like Megan said, they can coexist because remember when we identify malnutrition, it has, it's based on weight loss. Obviously those people who come in with the 400, 500 pounds, they can have weight loss. We don't know anything about them by looking at them. Mm-hmm. So it's weight loss, you know, if they've been eating poor, so that's what we're going to look at and physical signs of muscle wasting. And they have such high protein needs to maintain that body mass. So if they're on, you know, if they're not intubated, we have, you know, certain supplements, high protein supplements that we give them just because we need, they'll never get the protein that they need from the hospital tray. That's, you know, the tiny hospital tray with like half a portion of meat. (laughs) I know it's, yeah, it's not adequate at all, especially when we're talking again about these COVID patients, even just their respiratory rate is so high, they're hypermetabolic just because the inflammatory process, we fail to take that into account when we're just looking at a patient that we assume has had nutrition or 
has been eating throughout their lives. How does like, why is protein so important and how does that impact even just again, the respiratory drive, respiratory function, when we're talking about liberating patients that I, from the ventilator, why would protein and nutrition be so important in that discussion? Yeah, I mean, it definitely just involves our muscles. So just having the muscles to breathe, losing the muscles to swallow. So if they're getting off ventilator, if they're going to have dysphagia, they can lose that muscle. You know, if, if they have dysphagia, it could be because they lost that muscle in their vocal cords. So they're trying to you know, eat and they're having issues with dysphagia. So that's a huge thing, a huge thing with the muscles, with breathing. I know Megan has some good stats in here about protein. Yeah. Patients who received adequate protein were more likely to be weaned from the ventilator and had an over lower ICU and overall hospital mortality and a greater 60 day survival than those who did not. And we, you know, when we're estimating the needs for the ICU, they baseline have higher protein needs because they're in the ICU, they're in a critical illness phase. So already they have higher needs. And then we, the protein needs different based on BMI and their weight. So someone who has a little bit higher BMI will have a little bit higher protein needs. And then we put into account everything. If they have wounds, um, if they're septic, that all increases the protein needs. So we're changing protein needs. We have, you know, for our um, intubated patients, we have our protein modules, modulars. So we're using those a lot with those patients. Wow. I'm so glad you guys are there. Because it is such a, a niche. You're so specialized in this. And I'm thinking about the awake and walk in ICU. Their pressure ulcer rate is like less than 1%. A lot of patients are able to eat sometimes the very next day after being intubated for weeks. Um, sometimes it takes a few days, sometimes it takes longer. But on average, they're eating, swallowing, they're walking out the doors by the time they discharge from the hospital. I thought a lot about how that was. For, from early mobility, which clear, clearly it is, but dietitians are also very involved there. They are very prompt and aggressive about nutrition. And I did not appreciate the role that that played in those kind of outcomes that they've had. Well, how else are outcomes impacted? I think just, um, muscle wise, um, getting the protein in, we have our patients that have tricks and pegs. So getting that nutrition in once they have the peg tube and that really helps them recover. Overfeeding and underfeeding, we have to be aware of just because it can prolong time on the ventilator. With the CO2 production, when we're overfeeding them, that will prolong it. But because we are also hypercalorically feeding them. So based on that, they will inherently lose some weight because, but that's why protein provision is the most important to preserve that lean body mass, preserve that lean body mass. But once they're off the vent, once we're going between weeding trials and they, or and or they get a trach and can go on high flow or room or trach to room air, then we ramp those feeds back up and to meet their actual needs. But that's why protein, going back to what we discussed already, is the most important and independent of caloric intake because we automatically always hypercalorically feed our intubated patients. Interesting. I'm thinking too, how much of the tracheostomy rates that we're seeing right now with COVID patients could also be prevented with nutrition. If these patients spend however long days, weeks on high flow or BiPAP, and then are not getting the nutrition they need, they're not getting mobilized. How much does that lead into them being intubated? 
And then finally they get intubated and then finally they start getting fed because they're intubated. And because um, but at that point, the diet, and then they're not moved. They're getting all the sedation. The diaphragm has had so many assaults to it, but if we really nourished the diaphragm, how much more successfully could they be extubated? Yeah. Well, and, and they these- swallow and they wouldn't need pig tubes and they wouldn't need the trachs and they'd be able to just move on with life. Yeah. And I think one of the issues, and I don't know if I already said this, but is these COVID patients that come in, they're usually already in a malnourished state, poor intake. They're usually losing weight. Some of these COVID patients we've seen, their diagnosis was like three weeks ago. So we're talking three weeks of having that poor appetite, the taste changes that go along with it. But once they are intubated, if they you know get intubated and we can start tube feeds, you know, again, nothing against nurses, but sometimes the feeds get paused or they get turned off for if they're going for procedure, if they're MPO for some reason, then yeah, for proning, like proning is a huge thing where we have to change the rates and they usually are not getting their full calorie needs when they're proning. Cause, um, when they are prone, it's what we do at our facilities at trickle rate. And then we ramp them up to a higher rate once they're supine, but they're only supine for four hours. So it's not that much nutrition, but there's a lot of things that can interrupt the feeds. Megan was talking earlier about pressors. So if they're on multiple pressors, it increases the risk of gut ischemia. So we're not feeding when someone is on high dose pressors, three pressors, and that can go on for a couple of days. So sometimes we initiate parental nutrition if it's appropriate, but sometimes it's just a waiting game of when they can get off of them. And a couple episodes back, you were talking about how like they were using propofol, but like that one facility or your facility does IBWS with propofol, which I was like, that would be so much better if, why are we feeding the entire body mass, you know, especially for those patients who are, have a higher BMI, we don't need to, feed them. And then because certain purple falls at like a hundred, that'll meet a hundred percent of their calorie needs and 0% of their protein needs. And then we have increased risks of like higher triglycerides, like things like, like liver injury. And that's what we have to take in consideration too, but we can't overfeed because that means time on the vent, things like that. So it's a balancing act and it's trying to can we lower the propofol a little bit? Like we get it. We're not the doctors or nurses, the ones that are touching the patients, the one that are in care directly with them, but we try our hardest to push in a direction where we can at least meet their needs adequately and prevent what we know we can prevent. And I wish I understood these things before. I remember as a nurse, the dietitian asking me in rounds, were the feeds paused? How long were they paused for? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. We, we walked, then we went to CT and then I, I can't keep, I don't know how long, but why are you asking me? I, I plugged yeah, it back yeah. in, I kept it going when I could, you know, just, it was just another thing to keep track of. It was just, but now I see why that is your business. <laughs> that is extremely important. There's a lot of protocols that are out there. There's like volume-based tube feeds. So it takes, it's a, nursing driven protocol mainly because the nurse has to say you're off feeds for two hours or you're supine, I mean, prone, or you're down for a test. How many hours have you not fed that patient? And then you kind of have to do a little bit of calculation to put, Mm -hmm. say they were at uh, 50 mLs an hour. Then for the rest of the day, it'd be 80 mLs an hour to ramp up to the calorie needs they need for that day. So there are protocols out there that help with that. We're trying to implement certain, we've got the early enteral nutrition protocol in a little bit here, but we're working towards maybe volume-based 
So there are things that dietitians are looking at that can help. It, it's just the process. It's a multidisciplinary approach. Yeah. So no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's nice that you come from a team that already has that process ingrained in your culture. And that's what allows you to move forward and allows you to call in an A to F bundle meeting and to get things going. I just keep thinking, how can we implement the A to F bundle? How can we have these outcomes if we don't bring dietitians to the table? You should be best friends with the nurses and the physical therapists. And you're the ones that are going to facilitate all of those goals that they're working towards. You know, physical therapists are fixated on the muscles and the physical function. Wouldn't be nice or neat if they could ask, Hey, has this patient had a a dietitian consultation and, and help facilitate that process as well. Be thinking about it as well. Everyone should have a right to not intrude on each other's disciplines, but understand what each other does and know how to best utilize each other. And I, I think you have every right to be pulling together that, that meeting for the ADF bundle and be calling everyone together to do that. And I'm so glad that your team is excited to do that. I hope to be able to support you guys. However, I can keep us posted on your successes and your updates and your process. I know it's a crazy time, but I appreciate that you're doing that even during this crazy time. Cause this is when it's especially essential. What last thoughts would you share with the IC community? What, what's your last invitation to us? Well, one thing um, that you kind of said is our huge thing is consult the dietitian. If you see a patient like oh, that patient's really small. They look tiny. Consult the dietitian. They probably have some weight loss. I mean, we see patients for so many reasons, CHF, diabetes, CKD, and most of those patients have those things going on when they come into the hospital. So honestly, we could probably see every patient. Every patient probably needs our help. (laughs) So consult us, know that we're um, the experts with nutrition support. So, you know, I don't know if sometimes doctors or nurses are not afraid, but hesitant to do TPN or enteral nutrition because it's more work, but they don't have to do anything. Just put the consult in the dietitian. We'll do everything. We'll manage everything. So that's huge. And then our last final note is that albumin is not an indicator of malnutrition. (laughs) Every dietitian I'm sure will um, be happy to hear that, but you know, albumin is not an indicator. We get consulted all the time. It's based on weight loss and, you know, PO intake for malnutrition. And my, our last thing also is that everybody is human at the end of the day and they should be treated as such. It doesn't matter their size, BMI, anything, even in the ICU when they're critically ill, but regular floor patients, weight loss should never be a goal in the hospital. And just dietitians should not be consulted for Mm -hmm. it. We're here to help our, help our patients get nourished for, you know, to help their disease state. We want to make sure they're getting enough nutrition. We never want to take away nutrition. So we do get weight loss consults. So not appropriate in the acute setting. Oh, such good points. And you tie perfectly into the whole theme of humanizing the ICU that you are there to make sure that they stay functional, human and survive. And it can't and won't happen the way it needs to happen without your involvement as dietitians. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for future collaboration. And if it's okay, I'd love to put your contact information if people want to reach out with questions. I think you're just powerful resources. Thanks for all you're doing and keep up the awesome work. Thank Thank you. you. We're excited. (laughs) If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.